out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned. Immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter. It's the one and only Kevin Hewick, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Um, famous for many things, he's got uh, a prolific um, solo career. Um, originally in the late 70s, early 80s, was on Factory Records, then Cherry Red Records, and has um, been releasing a lot of albums very recently on the Botheration label. Actually, that's his own. Including an album last year which was titled Never Give Up on a Song. Has got live dates as well. And, um, yes, what else can I tell you? Yes, played with people from um, New Order, almost was Joy Division, as well as The Sand, and um, a supporter just about everybody you could imagine. From Roy Harper to Shawadi Wadi to PJ Harvey, and also Section 25. Anyway, look, this is the interview with Kevin. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Take it away, Kevin. A really big one. Um, a big factor with me was um, my uncle. He was, this is my uncle Joe. He was um, my mum's youngest brother. And he was considerably younger. Uh, he was only six years older than me. So as I was 10, he was 16, you know, like that. And um, Joe basically, I mean, you could leave school at 15 then. He went to work in the hosiery factories in Leicester, which was a big industry then, and later as a postman. And he spent all his money on records. And I used to go to see him at my granddad's house and he'd, he'd play the records he'd bought and I just heard a vast amount of music at a really young age and I especially became conscious of it at about eight, nine, ten years old. It became a big thing with me and a big interest and I, I started wanting records when I was eight. My first single that I ever chose was um, Nancy Sinatra, These Boots Are Made For Walking. And that was for my eighth birthday on um, February 4th, 1965. So I can actually pinpoint the moment. Nice. And um, I like the B-side even more, The City Never Sleeps at Night. So that was a very key thing. And um, my Uncle Joe... He really did buy everything on um, Tamla Motown, Atlantic, Stack. So I heard all that soul stuff, all that great classic soul music. He bought Blue Beat. So I was hearing things like Prince Buster and so on when they were happening around about 1965, 66. Um, and he was buying albums like uh, Bob Dylan, Blonde on Blonde. So I was hearing that at nine years old and Jimi Hendrix, Electric Ladyland, all those sort of things. It was all filtering into my mind, you know, and I was a huge Beatles fan. And um, I remember going around to see Joe 
deliberately the day Sergeant Pepper came out because I knew he would have a copy of it. And so we listened to Sergeant Pepper a couple of times through, a couple of times through on the actual um, day it was released in 1967. I think it's something like June the 28th, 1967. That had a massive effect on me. And, of course, they'd brought out the single, Strawberry Fields and um, Penny Lane. Strawberry Fields was the one that really got to me. Mm. So this is at 10 years old. I'm completely, completely fascinated by all this. And I remember with Sergeant Pepper, things like, it was the more sort of far out things, like Lucy and the Sky with Diamonds and... um, George Harrison's Within You, Without You. I loved it. And, and of course, A Day in the Life. A Day in the Life was unbelievable. Yes. You, you really had never heard anything like it before. It really my, was. My, my favourite track on that album is Sun Side 2, is Good Morning. I just loved, I love the rhythm and I <laughs> love the lyrics of Good Morning. I just always thought they were just, I was very... It's quite droll. It's quite, it's quite a, kind of captures that kind of... Um, humdrum British way of life. Yes. And there was something... there's a lot of music hall in Sergeant Pepper, a lot of feeling of music hall and variety. And um that all fits into that. There's there's references in it that of course long, long gone archaic. It's time for tea and meet the wife on Good Morning. I mean Meet the Wife was a a sitcom with Thora Heard, great comic comedian. And um I mean, nobody would remember Meet the Wife unless you were very, very old like me. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a really nice um, connection with Norwich as well, isn't there? Because there's that, the poster that John Lennon sees for the benefit of Mr. Kite, and they mention... Mr. Kite, yeah, yeah. But they mention a character in that um, who was this guy who was living in Norwich. He was a circus guy, and um, it was quite unusual because... He was a he was he was black as well, but that was um, so. They talk about this character who I'm now trying to desperately Google to say what was the name of that person, but it's in the song. It's like, and um, yes, there's a Norwich connection with that poster that John Lennon sees and basically does does this sort of um, just literally reads the entire contents of that poster out. Really, so um, Lennon Lennon was really the one that got to me the most and as things progressed I mean the first the first album I I got for myself was the White Album and Lennon became a source of fascination to me and him and Yoko and everything all the all the all the beddings and everything and, of course, good old Uncle Joe got their albums like Unfinished Music, Life with the Lions. So I heard all that stuff. Yes. And all that filtered in. I joined the Beatles fan club at the time when the Beatles were kind of, um, well, we didn't realise that they were growing very apart. But they were they were going into their most expansive phase, you know, a long way away from the matching suits and guitars up to the neck almost yeah playing all those nice hold your hand songs so they it was more the, yes more the progressive end of that and just to say i found out the poster that john lennon saw that was a 19th century circus poster for pablo fanky's 
circus royal royal appearance in in Rochdale and he lived in Norwich for a certain amount of time so that was so if you look at that poster he kind of basically pulls all the different acts that were going to be performing that night which is it was kind of lazy in a way because he just he just recites the poster pretty much (laughs) (laughs) yeah lazy lyric writing but 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 it's not the first artist to pinch things from life and um, quote them verbatim. Yes. But, uh, so and not, not the first with, and not the last. Did you get obsessed <laughs> with the White Album? The White Album, uh, I, I used to kind of play it religiously, side one, two, three, four. But it was obvious that certain things had a lot more to them. So... The songs that really got me deeply were things like Lennon doing Julia and Dear Prudence and Cry Baby Cry and, of course, Revolution Number 9. Yes. I mean, of course, avant-garde composers had done like music, concrete things already in that ilk, but on a mass market scale of people being fans of like what was the biggest group in the world at that time, that was quite a dividing line, that track. So what I mean, there must have been people must have been people totally baffled by it who couldn't bear to listen to it. No. And I, of course, learned it by heart. Yes. And <laughs> I there could you probably go. do a I could probably do a decent a cappella version of Revolution number no. nine back then. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, you and, um, no, I was just thinking of Charles Manson, because he was obsessed with that album, wasn't he, really? Dear old Charlie. He's, yes, his solo, his solo career never took off, did it, really? He did, um, did you ever listen to Charles Manson's work, solo work? Um, let's edit him out. I've got <laughs> nothing to say about him. No, I don't blame edit you. that out, definitely. Yes, so, what happened to Uncle Joe? Um, he lives in Luton now. <laughs> did, he, did he keep his obsession, obsession with music going all that time? Um, I tell you, I tell you, I think, I think he's a he's a really big fan of the Pet Shop Boys. He's got everything, Pet Shop Boys, everything, every single everything. Yes, amazing. I've not seen him for a while, um, unfortunately, because of lockdown. Among other things, it's kind of like caused that social disruption to so many things and with so many people and of course the music things it it's had a a shocking effect i mean we're kind of emerging out of it now in fact i'm due to go into a real um burst of live activity the most that's happened since the lockdown period i've done things in dribs and drabs but doing a short tour with a couple of other songwriters, a good friend of mine, Simon Waldrum, yes. and uh, a new, well, she's not new as a musician, but Rebecca Milam is kind of new as a singer-songwriter. She's done a lot of playing, violin and keyboards and singing, but she's kind of doing this as her own artist, you know, yeah. and it's it's a big step for her. So Simon's quite prolific. He's done a lot of things and a lot of experimental things and a lot of songwriter albums. And so we're doing a we're doing a few venues around the 
Midlands. I mean, um, nobody, nobody's ever heard of us and we haven't got, you know, a promoter working with us or anything, but we've, we've got dates in Leicester, Loughborough and Coventry, Belper, Derby, round or round this part of the East Midlands, really. Fantastic. I wish we could get further afield. Oh, I, I think Coventry's West Midlands. Yes, tricky. So look, when you hit 13, this is 1970, and the, obviously the 60s are slowly changing quite dramatically with the, you know, the, I suppose the death of Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, and then was obviously the Beatles. That was all a, all a huge shock. I remember the day Hendrix died, it was, you didn't get, didn't get to know about it till the, again, news travelled slower. I heard it on the radio. I think it was Pete Drummond, the DJ, and he announced it on Radio One and played the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. And I, I was just stunned because you hadn't thought of people dying. The only person I can think of before Hendrix who had that impact was when Brian Jones died just after he'd left the Rolling Stones. Yes. Which is um, it's yeah, a no. big shockwave, and then and then of course Janis Joplin came out uh, soon after, and Morrison was a few months on in nineteen seventy one. So when did and you when did you pick up a guitar? I have a funny history with guitar. I actually pestered my parents to get me a guitar when I was six, but I didn't learn a thing on it, and. Um, Quite infamously, in the end, I'd lost interest that much and my cousin was interested. I remember my mum saying, um, Joanne's interested in guitar. Would you mind if we gave her that guitar? And I went, no, oh, no give it to her. And then Joanne had it and she smashed it. So <laughs> that was the end of that guitar. And I don't think Joanne ever became a guitarist either. So, yeah. Uh, then when I was 12, I really got the bug again and really wanted a guitar. And uh, I remember getting one for 12 guineas. We still had guineas then. Yes. And um, considering how long ago that was, that's 1969, I ought to be a loads better guitarist than I am. But I'm completely untechnical, completely self-taught. I did have a few lessons, didn't relate to it. And I still don't relate to um, things like music notation and all these scales and chords and theories. And people tell me I'm doing things and I don't know what I'm doing. I, it sounds right to me or it sounds, it sounds integral. Yeah. So someone will tell me I'm playing a something fifth and I don't know what a fifth is. I have no idea. And I don't want to know. I'm not interested. It's worked for me without it. And I feel like sometimes people know a lot about music technically and they know all the scales and all the modes or whatever they're called. You see, that's what I mean. It's just, it's just self-professed ignorance. Yes. And um, people say about those things and I don't understand anything about it really. I've obviously acquired knowledge over so the what, years. what was the first song you tried 
play in all this first song you wrote? I mean, do you, or which came first, your first attempts of covering a song or your first attempts of writing a song? I was making up songs. Um, I was making up songs about 11, 12. And I thought I was a songwriter. I was convinced. <laughs> and um, I got showed a few chords by a guy my dad worked with, a, a young guy um, called Eddie. Um, am I remembering that? I was, that you're going to have to edit this. It's shocking. No, that's fine. Um, People love a bit of relaxed you know, narrative. Um, um, my brain's gone. I don't think his name was Eddie. It's really bad because he, he died young, this guy. Mm. He, he came and showed me some guitar stuff and he... He passed away soon after. He he had a he had something wrong with his stomach, and he it was a bit of a shock because he was coming around showing me guitar, and then my dad said he can't come this week because he's ill, and then he died. And of course, again that was a big shock because somebody he was only nineteen. That is wow. A shock. Yes, that's rather too too. I, I, I always remember his name and. For some reason, his name's gone, so that's an unusable part of the interview anyway. (laughs) Sorry about that. No, God, that's absolutely fine. So then as as we were trucking through the 70s, you know, there was the sort of, in a slightly simplistic way, you know, obviously there was the sort of a bit of the heavy metal world appeared and then obviously glam rock and then a bit of prog rock and Californian soft pop and soul kind of sound. What was was your kind of musical journey during the 70s going, going like? really incredibly diverse though i also would say i had quite old tastes because by the mid 60s i was very aware of a lot of different sorts of music so as you get into the 70s i've already heard stuff years back and i'm very aware of what it is and everything but as the 70s came, I was very enthused with um, things like Led Zeppelin. And I liked a lot of what people call prog music now. I loved Yes, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Curved Air, all those sort of things. And uh, But I was also very aware of stuff like Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, the songwriter things. Roy Harper had a huge effect on me. Yes. It was amazingly diverse. And, and were your parents listen, quite musical? Did they have a kind no, of musical interest? No, they liked it, but no, they weren't. They weren't. They didn't play instruments or anything, no. Yes. No. I'm, I'm from a working-class background. My dad worked as a milkman. My mum worked in um, the local chemists, and they were very hard-working people. And my dad, my dad did window cleaning as well as being a milkman. I realise now he did physical hard work all day long, you know. And my mum um, had another part-time job. Oh, they, they, were, they were these labels, these tickets that they put on clothes, you know, the, the labels. And my mum had to put the string through them. We'd all sit around doing it in the evening. And she'd get paid for per thousand. Awful one a lot, Mark. 
my mum spent, um, we joined in, spending hours with her doing it. I didn't have any brothers or sisters. I was really protected and they really did, I realised they really did lavish a lot on me. Right. Considering, yeah. considering, I mean, they work long hours and they work very hard. I feel guilty about it now when I look back because I didn't, realize i was too ignorant to understand just how much they did yes. but i think that was generation because mm. my parents were very working class and you know my dad yeah had a job but then at the weekends he also did other jobs to pay for things like christmas or going away to butlins or pontins for a holiday i mean yeah. you couldn't have those things if you didn't have another side hustle and all my that. dad did pick up on um the music he got he got interested with me he came to me with me to the concerts we some of the earliest concerts we went to i mean the first one we went to was rory gallagher's band taste right with john eisman's coliseum and my dad loved it and we went to things like uh, derrick and the dominoes when eric the one time eric clapton toured derrick and the dominoes we saw them we saw things like Pink Floyd, Traffic, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, yes. And my dad came to them all with me. He loved it. My God, that's and quite... He hadn't, he, hadn't really, um, he hadn't really known this music before. He became very enthusiastic about Bob Dylan. And we, through many years, we, into the 2000s, we, we went to see Bob Dylan together quite a few times. That's a nice memory. It is, it is a nice memory. My dad... Um, my dad, it'll soon be three years since he passed away. He used to drive me as well, because um, I've, I've never been able to drive, and he'd drive me to to my own gigs. And when, for example, I got on a tour with Roy Harper, opening for my great hero, Harper, my dad drove around with me to the venues, you know, like Birmingham and Leeds and London and that. He, he came too. He was my roadie. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the nicest stories I've ever heard. Well, that's 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 the side of him that was extremely supportive, extremely supportive. Mm-hmm. And I never was and never have been a great success as a musician um, materially. I've never had great commercial success. But um, I did get a lot of support from him. Well, that's really nice. So and when- from my mum, though also... My mum was perhaps a bit more sceptical. I remember she said to me once in my 40s, she said, why, do you, why are you doing music? You're never going to get anywhere. Why don't you give up? Which was not really what I wanted to hear. And I'm 65 now and I'm still doing it and still as deeply involved in it. So, <laughs> And still as commercially unsuccessful. <laughs> Well, it's, it's got to be done. So, did you? I mean, I'm, I'm not dreaming of being a um, rock star or anything. It would be nice to be a bit more commercially successful and actually sell albums to enable me to put it back into making more. Yes, this is this, yeah. is, um, this is the vicious circle. and also to to indulge in my um, terrible rock star. Um, tasting guitars. I'm I am guitar mad, and I've had a lot of guitars, uh, and have quite a few, and then I trade them and get others. And but it is a bit 
like a rock star taste in guitars. It's, you'll see lots of pictures of me with lots of different guitars. <laughs> well, <laughs> over it's, the years. As obsessions go, or, or sort of, yes, things to collect, there is, that's a pretty good one, actually. So when I, you think get... I think, I think the, the one material thing that I really uh, crave, I'm, I'm obviously not interested in things like cars because I can't drive. I think yeah. guitars are the thing. Yeah, this is this is good. Which is acoustics, good. electrics, basses, anything that's a guitar, basically. Nice, nice. So, look, when you hit sixteen, did you leave school at that age, or did you go on to? No, I, I, I had quite a time then because I got in a place called Countysort College by chance, by sheer luck just being in the catchment area it was about three miles from where I lived and um, it was an extremely experimental school probably the most experimental school in the country it really was progressive and it was amazing to I mean I, I got there when I was 14 and I came from a awful school with very traditional school uniform and everything and the cane you name it and you went to countysorp and it was like heaven wow. you could um you could go to school in your jeans and grow your hair and play guitar and dodge lessons and play guitar <laughs> that's basically what i did <laughs> excellent and, and i'm sure ofsted would have loved it wouldn't they um well it 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 still exists, it's an academy now, and it's unrecognisable. And the really strange thing is, is you go there now, 50 years on from when I'm talking about, and it's like 50 years back the other way. It's, the kids are great. I met some, I've met some of the kids at the academy, as it is called now, and they're wonderful. You know, they're, they're all those wonderful things that young people are. You, you see all that hope and aspiration and yeah. dreams in them and they're great talking to them that i think on the whole you know young people are great you know and they are they are the hope for the future and um yet the place itself is like it's totally backtracked from what it was like then and when i talk about them you can feel sometimes that it's not quite comfortable subject matter because County thought really was way ahead of a lot of things in this day, never mind then. It it really was progressive and it really was revolutionary. And it's the way school should have gone, but didn't. Yes. Obviously, yeah. it got nipped in the bud. I was there until 1976. And by the time I left, it was already changing. You could see that writing was on the wall that, the the era we'd had in like 71 72 73 was gone you know it was gone it was a unique moment in time and it coincided with glam rock and david bowie and t-rex and roxy music and all those things and that all fitted it perfectly yes i would imagine that was a golden time for, for you incredible incredible though i was a bit of a progressive rock fan as i say and i I mean, I really regret when Bowie came as Ziggy Stardust to Leicester, I missed him, you know. I saw Yes do Topographic Oceans, though, so what the hey. It swings these roundabouts. Things, these yes. things balance out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you have a Roger Dean poster on your wall? Um, 
I must have done, yeah. Yeah, I did have the topographic oceans cover the poster, yeah. I had Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And then later on, signs of changing times. I remember having a big Bruce Springsteen Born to Run poster and a big poster of Debbie Harry. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know. Changing times. I mean, My I'm... bedroom, you could sort of see the history of... Um, the history of 70s music unfold literally poster by poster and yeah and then it changed <laughs> so were you quite an earnest young chap at school were you um yes i was a i was a bit of an idiot really i think i was pretty pretty stupid i was i was probably quite precocious quite ahead of things i didn't do the academic work to pass exams and get to uni or college, I ended up, not for the first time in my life, kind of making bad decisions. And I really go into the zone of things. It's kind of like what I'm like with music. I go into the whole heart and soul of it and feeling of it, and yet my grasp of anything practical and business-wise and what you have to do to survive is probably very poor. I've, I'm probably like a mixture of some sort of like ideological hippie and an ideological punk. And yes, it's um... you know I think I, 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 uh, you know maybe I can see people for what they are. You know I don't follow these people as perfect heroes, but figures like Dylan and Neil Young and Lou Reed, you know, uh, uh, loom big in my consciousness. Yes, and did you read? Did you read certain books like Jack Kerouac's On the Road or Carlos Castaneda and those kind of classics? You know, I gave it a try. I tried. Yeah, yeah. Zen but and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Zen and the Art of. Um, um, I think Khalil Gibran, the the prophet, was the one with me. <laughs> <laughs> I got into that, and. Well, music, music told you all that stuff anyway. You know, you, you, got, you got key albums. And, I mean, to me, things like Roy Harper's Stormcock and Life Mask, they, they were, and what Pink Floyd did. Maybe people would roll their eyes at it now, but Dark Side of the Moon had a huge effect on me. Yes. Well, it, it was, and it was, a, it was very melancholic for somebody, you know, hearing it, I mean, I would have first, in fact, I first heard it when I was 15. I saw them perform it in Leicester as Eclipse, the very early version of it. Mm. And a very melancholic thing and very careworn when you look at the lyrics and disillusioned, isn't it? Very, and yes. I took all that in. Was, you see, yes. I, was, I was very conscious of things like uh, Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell and those sort of lyricists. I had a friend who was very into Nick Drake. I mean, you know, while he was alive. <laughs> Not many people were into Nick Drake when he was actually around. No. I didn't probably. quite get it, but you know, I heard it I heard it from one of my friends. Um there was just so much stuff happening. It's in, I look back at it and it's incredible, really. I mean, we know far more about it now because you just couldn't keep up with it. And it didn't necessarily get played on the radio. 
people will cite John Peel. And of course, John Peel did a tremendous amount with a, a lot of music that would have never been heard otherwise. But the big technical problem with Mr. Peel was if he didn't like it and he didn't play it, nobody would play it. And he did have some irrational dislikes. Yes. I mean, for example, he didn't like The Doors, he didn't like The Grateful Dead, he didn't like Janis Joplin, and those things loom large with me. I mean, I love The Grateful Dead now, but at the time you wouldn't have heard The Grateful Dead from John Peel because he didn't like them. Wow, you know, he didn't like them. Mm. What does that mean? I mean, we all have our personal tastes. But... American Beauty is such a great album. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I I love all that stuff. A big regret of mine is I never saw, got to see The Dead. And I listen a lot to um, the European tour stuff in 1972. Like, they played the Lyceum and Alexandra Palace and the Bickershaw Festival, They Newcastle City Hall. There's great recordings of these things. And they often did incredible peak. Mm versions of Dark Star that went on for 20, 30, 40 minutes. It's amazing. You're amazing stuff. So did you go to Bickenshaw? No, no. <laughs> Jeremy I, I, Beadle. I never, Jeremy I never went to Beadle. a festival oh, type. Isaac's I never tall, went to a festival type thing until 1978. I went to Blackbush, which was pretty grim because it was just a aerodrome that they used for the day. That's when Bob Dylan played there. I went to Blackbush and saw Bob Dylan. And it really was like putting whatever, I don't know how how many people it was, it was 150,000, I don't know, in in an aerodrome. Oh, I went to Nebworth and saw the Rolling Stones. Blimey. That was quite a bill. That was the Rolling Stones, 10cc, Leonard Skinner and Todd Rundgren's Utopia. And I was a massive Todd Rundgren fan. So though Todd Rundgren was bottom of the bill, to me, was top of the bill. Mm. Um, so I was there at Nebworth when the Stones did their rather lethargic set, came on hours late and played deep into the early hours. And they did sound stoned as well. <laughs> yeah, that's tricky. So then as, as, the, as the decade progressed on, had you left, had you gone to university at this stage? No, no, I, I did say earlier, I, I failed all the exams. I didn't pass my A-levels and things. I, I was such a kind of, um, I was so into this kind of ethereal zone that practical things like passing exams, no. No, you were going you were gonna to give it to the man. I, 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 I got very into drinking. Right. I didn't, I didn't, I, I was kind of, I think I was too scared of my parents to do drug drugs. But drinking was a kind of an understandable thing to like working class culture and also legal. Yes. Well, when you were 18, I was I got into drinking when I was 15 and I loved drinking. I loved getting drunk. I loved it. And I got drunk like people get high on drugs, you know. I, I was definitely me doing my equivalent thing. And so in a way, it was kind of a bit of a dropout. There's only way to put it, really. I kind, of, I kind of dropped out in a way. If you could give me drink and music 
and uh, things like that, I was happy. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess it, this is the joy of youth, especially in that period. So, yeah, so when did you sort of, you know, get it together to start making music as a sort of more of a, you know, a proper I, thing? Uh, I, 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 was, I was doing things with friends, like bedroom bands, as we call them, that never, bands that never played anywhere or did anything, but we made up things and made things that made us laugh. And we'd get at somebody's house when the parents were away. I had a couple of friends whose parents often obligingly went away and we'd get the run of the house. I had a friend who's a quite a well-known actor now, Nick Dunning. And uh, Nick Dunning's house was like the ultimate place to go. And we could do anything. His mum and dad, bless them, used to go away a lot. You know, they'd, like, they'd, they'd be gone and we'd, we'd be there. I remember we had a party there that started on a Saturday night and ended on the Monday morning, you know, and things like that. Like, so 36-hour parties and things like that. And then I got more into the introspective thing of writing songs myself. I got a reel-to-reel tape recorder and again, totally untechnical. I loved making tapes. And right. I started thinking, I could do this because punk rock happened and it gets you to thinking, I can do that. It isn't some incredible, huge technical thing like, yes, doing topographic oceans and playing this fantastically complicated counterpoint with each other melodically and rhythmically. It, it's It's actually down to the raw voice and guitar stuff you know and the words so i started making tapes and i started sending them out including john peel who sent it back john peel never particularly warmed to me he never and that's why i never had a john peel session i always say in the 80s everybody had a john peel session even people who weren't musicians had john peel sessions i'm the only person who never got a john peel session ever Mm. <laughs> I mean, really, it seemed anything, anything could get a John Peel session, except me. And Toya. Um, I, I did an interview with Toya once, and she was a bit angry about John Peel, actually. she. I'm not angry about him, but I can understand Toya feeling like she did. Maybe, maybe was rather dismissive of what she did and didn't support it and... It was very difficult as well. It was very difficult because you were, you had no real outlet anywhere else then. If he didn't play you, nobody did. I know, it's a bit tricky actually. So then as, as we hit 79, Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher gets into power. And then we have the sort of next three years, which is, you know, coloured with things like the Falkland crisis and Greenham Common and the miners' strike. What was, what were you then, you know, where were you in the state of, play kind of musically in life, life admin? Well, by then, uh, um, I got, um, I was on benefits and I got press ganged at an interview into working for the Social Security Office. Blimey. And little did I know, I thought, this is terrible, this is terrible. And there I am loving bands like um, Joy Division at the time. And Joy Division, I mean, Ian Curtis was working in the local employment office. So a very similar job. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know this parallel, but 
you kind of have this unrealistic dream of people living incredibly free and glamorous lives doing music, total freedom, you know, that they were living this totally free, fantastic music life and living the life in their songs. And they were, but they weren't, you know, you get what I mean. Yes, um, they, they weren't. They I, know, I know all about now. I know loads of great musicians who've had no great commercial success and don't make a lot of money playing live or lose money playing live like me. And uh, the music is deep in them, deep in their heart and soul. But um, it's it's an art form that doesn't necessarily reward greatly. Well, mind you, why should it? You're not entitled to it. It's, yes. I know. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. You see things like theatre and dance and things, and get multi-million-pound complexes built for them. You notice, yeah, there is a kind of. I'm going to sound slightly class warrior. There is a kind of respectable arts that the middle class funded and indulged, and then there's the, this thing that's kind of looked down upon and that struggles to exist and that goes for whatever you want to call it from indian rock music to rap and drill and whatever people do you know that that these are things that can emerge yes from the streets from the estates it's true. You know what I'm saying? That they emerge. I mean, now this, the technology has made an awful lot possible. I've got incredible drum stuff in this phone. Amazing. Have yes. you seen Funkbox? That's what an app that is. It's an amazing app. And you've got all the drum machines that once would have cost you thousands of pounds in your phone coming out with all these amazing patterns that you can change and speed up and slow down. And so the technology exists now for people to do all sorts of things. It's crazy work. I mean, I'm old-fashioned, really, because it's down to a, me. It, it all The song starts with an acoustic guitar and a voice and a notebook and a pen. That yes. is so old-fashioned. It's like something from out of the ark. <laughs> yes, you said about the 70s and, like, and the early 80s and what was happening, I, I actually uh, became, I would say, idealistically very left-wing. Left um, I was kind of like, it was funny because I ended up in a lot of arguments with Tony Wilson about politics. <laughs> it was funny because I was I was very into things like campaign for nu nuclear disarmament and things like that. I went on the marches and everything, and so and th th that's the political, and then the personal things swamp you a bit. I mean, I lost my way as. I had a time on Factory that was quite extraordinary, but I wasn't popular. It was very hard performing live. I mean, I got a lot of heckling and negativity. And I listened to some of the tapes. I've got a lot of tapes from them. Yes. And I listened to some of the sets I did. No wonder. I don't know how I dared to do what I did. 
it was so raw and it was so exposed and it was also so badly put together and I would say badly realised. Um, I had a tough time yes. um, after the initial burst of wonder. I had a lot of wonderful things happen. It was great being on bills with people that I grew to really love and, and admire and who've still remain significant to me like section 25 especially i used to do gigs with section 25 back in 1980 and i'm playing with section 25 in june in london <laughs> and th they've been through obviously incredible changes and and bereavements but there you are there is still a section 25 vin cassidy is still flying that section 25 flag and here we are 42 years later doing a gig together yeah. amazing and we've done a lot of gigs together over the years. Which was incredible. And it was amazing to be on the same bill as things like Joy Division and um, I did a lot with Derussi Column, Certain Ratio, all those things. And as I said, Section 25. I look back at that and I think I was a, you know, I was a bit of an idiot. I didn't make the best of it at the time. I perhaps made the worst of it. Yes. And what was your kind of experience in the recording studio at that point? With um, Unhappy. Very good. unhappy. Mm. I just lost my nerve. Right. And it was kind of rushed. It was, it was a world of, I mean, if you're any good, obviously you should be able to do this. It was a world of going in a recording studio to a session and making, say, a single and doing it there and then A and B side. And come on, that's time honoured people have been doing that you know the old blues singers making 78s did it didn't they and the old rock and rollers in the 50s did it you know and laid down tracks at a session and did great versions you know with no overdubs so I can only blame myself with that things were laid on for me and I I didn't do very well i lost my nerve yes so when you i was comfortable making tapes at home yes. on my own tape recorder when i went into a studio i was completely lost i really lost my nerve yes well i can i can relate to that um and also you see a thing a thing that's perhaps blessing and curse if i'd have done something really you know that grabbed people in the 80s I'd now have this kind of thing that a lot of acts of my age have that were a success then. They have to do they have to do those songs. Nobody cares much about anything they do now. They want to hear them doing the stuff from their youth. But I don't have that. No. Most of my most of my shows I do live, most of it's stuff I've done in the last decade. You know, like 90% of it, more than 90%, perhaps it's 93%, who knows? <laughs> it might be 93.5%. It's material that I've written in the last few years. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm free. I'm free. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bound to some big glorious history and big glorious memory that people... Mm. But, but that's also, I say blessing and curse, it also means... I'm pretty obscure considering how long I've done this. And um, it's a bit, it's never comfortable. I'm always having to sort of like 
I don't walk into sort of like a, a nice ready-made audience who know the songs, you know. I also have some great support from some people. There might not be many of them, but boy, you know, I, I, I have people who've travelled to things. This gig was Section 25. I'll have friends from Leicester there who, who will do that 100-odd miles and get there to Walthamstow. They'll be there because I'm there, you know, which is amazing. It is it's nice. very humbling. So when you, just, just briefly on that Factory Records, did you have a band at that stage or were you kind of just doing this as a solo act? I was solo. I'd go on mostly playing electric guitar by myself. And there weren't many people doing it then. I mean, away from, I think the folk scene was somewhat struggling. It was a kind of low point for the folk scene. In that kind of scene of what you would call post-punk, what we now know as indie music. Yes. Um, really, there was me. Um, there was Patrick Fitzgerald. The safety Patrick really, yes. Patrick was really the, the, the trailblazer. I remember Pat, seeing Patrick supporting the jam and seeing Patrick play at the um, famous Hackney Rock Against Racism concert. I went for that. I went to that, where the Clash and Tom Robinson Band and X-Ray Specs and Steel Pulse played and Patrick played right. on that I mean. day. Nobody remembers that bit. You know why they don't remember the bit with Patrick? It's because the audience were awful to him and throwing stuff and booing him just because he was a guy on his own. And it's funny, isn't it? It's all presented now as this, uh, yeah, Rock Against Racism and you know, this glorious day of glorious glory, you know. But the guy on his own with a guitar who was a poet was spat out and had bottles thrown at him and everything from this supposedly idealised audience. Of course, there were a lot of people there making a stand against racism, but you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, it's not the sadly. It's not the last time I saw such things where you've got something standing for an ideal, and yet people can be like, you know, pack animals and turn aggressive. I saw a disgusting thing once. You know, there was a. I went to see you too at um, Round Hay Park in Leeds. Must be nineteen ninety two, and on the bill they had a Leeds band of rappers called Marksman. That's like Karl Marx. Right. You know, like a Marksman. They're like a pun. And the audience were disgusting to them and booed them and threw stuff at them. And I thought, where's all the Bono save the world idealistic stuff now? This is the audience that supposedly turned on to all that. Yet a mixed race band of rappers come on in the afternoon and get vilified. Mm. Get my point? Yes, it's just—it it's was just... awful, and it, I thought, I thought, why doesn't Bono get out from his trailer or wherever he's back there and say, "Pack this in," or you know, "Pack it in," because I tell you, I did see do that, and again, not who you expect were the Stranglers. The Stranglers had Steel Pulse opening for them, and the audience were vile, and the Stranglers actually came on in the middle of Steel Pulse's set and people started cheering and they actually came to the mic and said, um, Steel Pulse are our friends. We we want you to listen to them 
And if you keep treating them like you're doing, we won't play. That, it's funny. Now, if the Clash had done that, it would all be legendary. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. I'm not being funny here, but you get my point. It would be like a legendary stand against intolerance and racism. And, but because the Stranglers did it, who you don't associate with that stuff, <laughs> you know. And I tell you, I'm certain they meant it as well. They wouldn't have played. They wouldn't have played if it had carried on. And it was vile because it was all people spitting at people. And I mean, the shame of it, really, because as well, Steel Pulse, such a great band. Oh, fantastic life. If yes. you actually had the ears and listened and took in what they were doing. This was a trailblazing young black British band doing something really fantastic. Yes, it was the people were horrible to them. It was a glorious period of roots reggae, wasn't it? It was. Misty I've kind of gone and... into a massive sidetrack here, anyway. But you get. Oh what yes, I mean. this is true. Look, so look, Factory Records, not a good experience. But then, sort of eighty-three, you you veered towards Cherry Red Records. So, how do you sort of manage yeah. to sort of navigate your um, way out of that? Cherry Red, uh, yeah, Cherry Red. Um, really came about because of, and again, somebody who's still a very dear friend, John Ollingsworth, um, who I met when he was student ends at Kingston Poly. And he booked me with The Sound, which is where I first met The Sound. But then John was very ambitious, a real kind of go-getter kind of guy. And he got to work for cherry red and he got them interested in me and um i got a lot of support when i think about it in mcnay was very supportive and still says very kind things and mike Allway was on the cherry red a and aunt then mike Allway was very supportive they really were supportive yes. and um tony wilson and factory became very wrapped up with the Hacienda, which opened in 82. And it obviously I'd lost my novelty and something like me, I mean, you can understand it. I was waiting and waiting, wanting another record, to do another record and bring another record out. But it, it, there was nothing going to happen. Yeah. I was frustrated because I hadn't got to make an album. I'd been with factory for three years and I was no closer to making an album and then Cherry Red let me make an album and I made <laughs> I made an album I don't know what to say about it I made an album that was so um well it was it was commercial and artistic suicide let's just say so there you are um, they gave me enough rope. <laughs> Bless them. <laughs> Did you enjoy making and, the album? Was were you proud of that album, though? I have no idea where my head was at. Really, I don't know what I was the hell I was thinking. Uh, I, I don't think I could ever bear to listen to it again. Fair enough. I mean, I. I think by then I was punch drunk with all the booing and stuff thrown at me and all the, and I kind of like went off the boil artistically. And again, I needed somebody to kind of 
shaped me. I had fantastic ideas and some of the lyrics and the musical ideas were great, but I didn't have that edit button and I didn't, I didn't have that way of crafting it, you know, and making something really beautiful or really relevant. I had no idea and I was allowed to indulge in this strange vision that even I don't understand now. Parts of it, traits of it live in me, obviously, but I, I'm, I mean, when we talk about this past, I'm always urging people, listen to what I've done in the last decade. I've done five albums in the last 10 years, and that's what I want to be, I'd want to be remembered for. If I drop dead tomorrow, perhaps I will now, now I've said it, if I, if I died tomorrow, I'd want people to remember me for what I've done in the last decade, not that stuff. Yes, well, no, what? that's absolutely fair enough. I mean, and I mean, I know a lot of artists will big up their latest stuff, even when they've lost what made them special many years before. But I've done it the wrong way round. I've I've hit on my best work in my fifties and sixties, which is typical me. <laughs> it's like <laughs> ridiculous, you know. But rock and pop, obviously, it's it's born of a youth culture. And obviously, older people like to remember how they felt when they were young. Yes. And I get it, you know, I get it. But like all the punk nostalgia and all that kind of thing, I'm with it in one way. I was there. I loved it too. I went to see those bands. I still like to see things. But also, you know, it, it's, it's, it's exactly, it's 40 years ago, you know. 40, yeah. more than 40 years ago. Well, absolutely. So then, so then just kind of the 80s happens and obviously not, not with you on the, on the musical front. When do you then, do you just kind of drop the whole music, kind of the guitar, everything, and just continue with getting through the rest of the decade? When do you start to sort of get the urge to play music again? Well, Cherry Red had to drop me in the end and I noticed I was, say that now with realism they had to drop me because my sales were so bad and I made an EP with the sound and I guess that was the last hope and even that didn't do that well and of course the sound you know like the sound got dropped by Warners I got I got dropped by Cherry Red you know so God is trying to tell you something there uh <laughs> I was very disillusioned and burned out and I effectively had a breakdown. And that's why I, I cut myself off from music. I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't want to look at a guitar, let alone play one. Mm. And I went through this very bleak, cut-off time. But I got the urge again. And I found I could still write songs and I could write them better. Unfortunately, I thought everybody would go, wow, great, Kevin's back, wow, fantastic. But when I contacted people, they didn't want to know. Or, you know, sometimes it was a bit of harsh reality, I guess. Yes. I had a publisher, uh, I won't 
mention the publisher's name. Anyway, I rang up Martin Goldsmith, and um, who was my publisher years before, and I said, Martin, I'm doing songs again. I'm doing, and um, I forgot his name mixed up. Yeah, I think I have. Sorry. That's I'm all right. mixing them up with the cooking. You've got to edit this terribly because that's my. That's anyway, you, you got in touch with Martin, your. I'm Martin Costello. Right. The publisher was Martin Martin Goldschmidt's Cooking Vinyl. Right. Oh, Jesus. Never if we could that. have had legal action. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Could have had legal action with me. Um. Anyway, I I rang. I mean, I rang my old publisher and said, "I'm writing really good songs again." And he went, oh, Kevin, things have changed. We've got gold records on the wall now. We've got like everything but the girl, gold discs, because they're publishing everything but the girl. Right. And it was like, didn't want to know. And uh, I've always called this the slowest comeback in history. It's took me 30-odd years, and here I am. <laughs> to your bemused listeners and to a bemused and sometimes indifferent world, here I am. <laughs> yes. So in the 90s then, you did two kind of, well, they self-produced. You did an album called In an Open Air Surgery. And then... Yeah, Help, they were... And Helpline. Yeah, there was Helpline came out on a Leicester label called Sorted. There was actually a fantastic label run by a guy called Dave Dixie. And again, Dave Dixie's still someone who gives me help and advice now. Um, Dave got a remarkable label going and was very supportive. And um, that was a good time. It kind of made me feel part of something again and I felt like I had someone to turn to. Yes. And I did stuff later on with another Leicester label called Pink Box. And again, Chris Garland at Pink Box gave me a lot of support. These are people are kind of priceless. They are our Leicester equivalent, maybe of what other towns and cities have. There are people in music who are totally idealistic. They're not driven by profit. They're not driven by anything but their love of the music and their belief in it. And I was lucky enough to cross paths with those people who did precisely that with me. And I'm always grateful to them yeah. for what they did. And again, they've encouraged me now to do things there's still people i can turn to and i also i guess found a big sense of community among leicester musicians among a lot of younger people as well as people of my generation a lot of i've worked with a lot of younger musicians and um been part of things i kind of pinch myself you know i'm i'm on bills with these people who are much, much younger than me. And I like to think I'm still relevant. I like to think I'm, what I'm doing still has a relevance. And it's amazing to be part of that. Yeah, well, absolutely. It, and did you... It, it may, sorry. I was going to say, did your parents kind of give you a lot of help and support during that kind of period of the late 80s and early 90s? You know, because they must have felt quite concerned as they're... You know, only we were in a kind of a situation. My mum suffered very badly with depression and had very serious breakdowns. 
and in a way they kind of they kind of got me in a way and in another way they didn't understand it and they were kind of a bit pull yourself together and you know my dad would say your mum's going through all this you know we don't need you as well like I was jumping on a kind of bandwagon you know mm. it was very difficult people are people you know they're they're wonderful and they're flawed yes. and families are can be a great thing very supportive and loving and they can be dysfunctional and confusingly our little unit we were both there was a lot of love and a lot of support and a lot of dysfunction yes that classic combination isn't it and it is confusing i could write a book about it though i don't know if i ever could because i I still feel like you're kind of betraying people, even saying what I'm saying now is kind of a a bit of a sense of betrayal because you you have to you have to admit things that you've done yourself. You are the author of your own misfortune, so to speak. And also those elements I mean, maybe me and my mum and dad were a kind of a a kind of lopsided loving but dysfunctional trio <laughs> and um yes it, it's it it's difficult when i look at how close we were and how difficult it was and how great it was all at the same time yeah and i went through uh, quite something with my dad because he he got dementia in the end and uh, I effectively became his carer. And we went through a, a journey through di- dementia together, you know, and um, a journey that could only end one way, of course. And uh, he was he, he was extraordinary through those years. But, uh, of course, you see the person fade away. Mm. And you're trying to hold your own life together as well. It's really difficult. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I've been through. I've obviously been through. You know, I've been. I've. I've been a. I've. I've got a daughter. Um, she doesn't have anything to do with me now. Um, and ex-partner there. I've I've been married and that marriage didn't work out in the end. You name it, and all the, all these things. You look at them now, and you think, are are they in? Is there something ingrained in you that makes this stuff happen and fail? And you know what makes things magic and what makes things bloody awful? It's all it's very hard to define. I did an interview recently with uh, someone talking about music and mental health, and it's a big subject matter to me Mm. because I've lived through it. And strangely, in a way, what I do in music comes from a condition. You know, it comes from some sort of spectrum and some sort of depression and um 
And yet, I'm also very idealistic, still very political, um, still very committed to the idea that music can change the world. I, I utterly believe it can. Yes. If people if people get into something positive, then that positivity can. And I don't mean somebody like a some sort of um, some sort of an idol or something, you know, with a guitar or whatever. Um, you know, being the kind of messiah or whatever. But you get what I mean. Yes. So on the I do I do think I do think it can be a huge conduit of emotion and connection and community and belief and faith. And there I almost talk in on a religious sense, a spiritual sense. Probably I mean more spiritual than religion, not organized religion. Yes. This must be the most untidy interview you've ever done with anybody. <laughs> it's all over the place, and it's you'll have a you'll have it's, a great fun editing it. You'll be um, you'll be my name will be Mud as you. No, it's fine. It's fine. So look, in the last ten years, just roughly, um, I mean, you know, recording wise, the O years, they sort of were. You did a few releases on on Pink Box with, you know, keep your um, flipped weeks on and then oh yeah yeah well that was a musical that was a an old school friend of mine had been working in drama jez simons by the way jez jez actually wrote some scripts for emma dale and eastenders (laughs) how weird is that and he wanted to do a musical and he wanted songs for the musical so he wrote the musical the book so to speak as they call it in musical and i wrote the songs and uh, the songs and the drama kind of fed each other. In a way, it doesn't make sense unless you saw one of the few people who saw that show. We had a fantastic cast of young people. My daughter was in it. Um, we had we had rival bands in like a send-up of X Factor pop idol type contests of the time. And... We had rival bands. We had a, we had an audience vote, and the, it was rigged. It was rigged. People actually voted, and of course, the worst band, the most the, the most commercial band, and yet the worst band won. And they didn't win. Actually, the other band got more votes. You get the idea. It was a fix. It was and a that, fix. That, so I don't know if that album makes much sense out of that context, but. It is interesting. And you do hear me try to sound like the Sex Pistols and stuff like that. Did you enjoy the experience? Did that give you a little bit of a lift? kind of? It was very enjoyable and then it became very stressful because unfortunately, as people do, it led to sort of like bits of arguing and stuff. Um, Raki Thakar was in it. Raki Thakra, I think. I'm sorry, I'm sorry if I'm saying the name wrong. She's quite a well-known actress now. She's been in a few things. She's in the next Willy Wonka movie. Right. She's gone on to bigger things. So <laughs> when the Willy Wonka movie comes out, I think it's just called Wonka. It's a kind of a, I think it's a variant on the Willy Wonka theme. Maybe right. it's a, what they'll call an origin story. And she was in that musical. Yeah, she was actually quite a, 
a key figure in it. She was amazing. Her talent was obvious even back then. You know, she shone out, and sure enough, now she's she's been doing stuff for the BBC. She was in EastEnders for a while, and she's done um, she's done this film. You know, she's she's quite remarkable. Though I saw her in a supermarket a couple of years ago, and she um, kind of gave me a mess. I could I could tell she didn't want to speak to me. So that's a bit you've got to edit out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's on the verge of breaking through as a, a perhaps, in, perhaps in a year or two, you'll say, "God, God, she's a huge star now because of the Willy Wonka movie." And, you know, and then there's me saying that being snubbed in a supermarket in the local Tesco when I ran into her there, she didn't want to even speak to me or look at me. There you go. These things happen. These things happen, don't they? I mean, it, it, look, at, look at Will Smith and Chris Rock, you know. I know, <laughs> I know. This is, this is no, why no, well, nobody it, slapped anybody. Nobody slapped no, anybody. No, thank, well, thank God for that. But that was the that was a good thing about having masks on going out in supermarkets because you could slightly, slightly be sort of um, disguised or at least could sort of avoid people a lot easier if you wanted to with a mask. Anyway, look, that's the mask period. But then... The mask the... thing is interesting, actually, because it does give you a different feeling about yourself. I have walked by people who didn't recognise me because probably I've got the mask on, so I know what you mean. Yeah, no, I and I, I sort of I used it once or twice as well, um, going, oh, I've got a mask, you can't recognise me. But then was your next release the one, The Heat of the Molten Diamonds? Oh, yeah, well, there was, um, there was an album called um, All Was Numbered. This is the Hacienda was, one. That was on Hacienda. Peter Hook said, if you want to do an EP for Hacienda, and then I did an old album and said, okay. So it was like a flag of convenience, really. And because All Was Numbered was kind of inspired by my time on that Manchester scene, and um, it's got songs about Tony Wilson, songs about Larry Cassidy of Section 25, who was a really dear friend. And so that album, yeah, like a concept album. So that came out on Hacienda. But like I say, it was a, just a label of convenience, really. And then I, I got my own um, legendary label going called Botheration, which is a kind of a Billy Bunter type Winnie the Pooh sort of thing, you know, Botheration, just yeah. posh English. I'm always getting it Botheration, so it seemed a good idea at the time. And <laughs> I looked it up, actually. You know how you do Google search? Is there anything called botheration, like a record label? And, and the answer was no. It's so hard to think of an original name yes. for anything. I mean, making a band name up. I'm involved in some band projects now. And there's one band project I've been involved with recently. And there's, there's three of us. And we can't think of a name. And we may use just use the surnames in Emerson Lake Palmer style. Um, Actually, we should call it Emerson Lake and Palmer. That'd be funny. But anyway, (laughs) but it is really hard to think of a name that everybody agrees on. And I, of course, I'm the, I'm a pain in the proverbial because if you suggest a name, I'll go. Oh, there's already a band called that. There's already been a band called that. That's me. That's me. That's typical me. Yes. Um, So sorry, you've lost your point again because I wandered. 
No, that's fine. So you started the record label in 2016. Uh, yeah, it would have been, yeah, because um, um, Heater Molten Diamonds came out on Pink Box on Chris Scott, Chris Scott and Sue Garland's label. And then I came out with Botheration. Actually, that album was made for Pink Box, but Chris and I couldn't agree on the tracks that were on it. He felt I should shorten the album and take three tracks off and ever want to sort of stand in a ditch with a gun to my head. <laughs> you know, I, I, I decided to go it alone. Not acrimoniously, no. But I, I went. I, I included the three tracks that Chris thought I should edit off, and released it myself. And I've done um, two albums since then. Yes. Um, driven by love, driven by hate, and never give up on a song. And um, there it is. That's botheration. Botheration we, in one, one easy... Botheration. Just... Also, I've got a very good friend, Jim Tatlow, who recorded things and done album cover art for me and he's recorded live things. And we've, we've brought out, like on Bandcamp, you can, you can listen to some live stuff that Jim's edited together of a venue in Leicester called The Criterion, which is a wonderful place. It's currently in flux, it's closed down, and it's for sale, but it's been completely um, gutted inside. It's unrecognisable from what it was. It looked like a 1970s pub, but just let me do anything I wanted. I played on Saturday afternoons, and I'd play on a Saturday. You can hear the Leicester accent there, Saturday afternoons, very Leicester accent. Um, <laughs> Saturday afternoons, I could go on for three or four hours and do what I wanted. And thankfully, Jim captured some of this on his recordings. Mm. But um, I don't know what will happen with the Criterion in the future. And there's no other venue mad enough to let me do it. So, <laughs> so with the last album, Never Give Up on a Song, this was, this was released last year. And it's, it's, it does sound like your best work yet on so many oh, thank levels. You. So when did you start putting this together? When was the, did, was it a kind of a pre kind of lockdown sort of, had you written all the songs before lockdown and then just kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was really, it was, it was really done before it was. Um, I, I kind of, if you like, just accumulate songs. I just write and write. And obviously you've got, you know, very new things, current things that you really want to put out. And I've also got, I feel like a bit like uh, my big influences, Bob Dylan and Neil Young, they're infamous for having amazing songs that they don't put on their albums and making irrational choices in running order and stuff. And I'm a bit like that. I've, I've, I've got some things now that people have never heard and I think they're wonderful and I'm sure they are. I can think of one song in particular that literally blows me away and I've never put it on an album and I've never played it live. So therefore, it's like my little secret song. <laughs> but I ought to share it. Because, you should share it, definitely share it. You know, the, the, 
but I do write constantly. I'm desperate to do another album now, and I don't know what to make of it. It's 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 not progression. It's just I don't really believe in this progression thing where people change. Well, not much hope in me changing hairstyle and change costume and become something almost like the Ziggy Stardust thing, isn't it? They invent yes. something and become a probably somebody like St. Vincent is good at changing her hairstyle and what she wears and becoming a new conceptual thing for each album. I'm obviously not like that. I obviously don't have a fantastic image. Um, and so it's just a body of work that I, keep, I hope keeps growing higher and higher. And I don't know what to make of some of the material I've written during lockdown and recently and things i've been working on as recently as today right yes yes i've got i've got a new song now and i'm really taken with it and i'm hoping it's very typical of me that i'll i'm playing on sunday the first of the little tour dates with simon waldrum and rebecca marlam and i've got a new new song that i've been working on today and i hope to play it on sunday um, I'll probably have to have the words in front of me <laughs> written in big writing so I can see them. Um, it doesn't look very professional, but I do do things like that. I have done things like written a song that morning and played it that night. And no, I don't have a fantastic memory. I have to look at the lyrics and I'm fumbling around with the chords and things, but I, I, I like to get them out there. On one hand, I've just said about accumulating songs that never appear. And then on other hands, I'm doing things and I'm, I want them out there. Yeah. So I'm desperate to get this new album done. Desperate, desperate to get started. I'm doing quite a bit with a keyboard player called Lee Spreadbury, wonderful guy. And Lee's um, doing the odd set with me now, playing keyboards with me. And it's quite a departure for me. We even do the odd thing where I don't play anything and I just sing. Uh, what do I think I am? Do I think I'm David Bowie with Mike Garson? I don't know. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a departure for me. And Lee translates things with great musical skill and knowledge of things that I don't have. So um, hopefully the next album will feature Lee quite a lot working with me. Yeah, absolutely. And But you do have... You know, sort of reading different articles and interviews and stuff you've done. You do have quite um, a lot of people who, you know, from Alan McGee, you've, you've kind of been on one of his kind of disc, death disco nights at Notting Hill. Yeah, yes, I, I've done Alan's radio show as well. Yes. Yeah. So you obviously he, have, you know, you, you are sort of well known with, with every musical. Alan's, Alan's, Alan's great to me. He's really kind to me. I, I last saw Alan... Um, the end of last year and um he was in leicester he did um he did a thing with the oh god my brain's gone what's the name of the idol singer joe oh i don't know well he, he did he did a, he did a thing with the idol singer they were talking about music and stuff and john Ollingsworth was there the old um cherry red and our guy went on to warners and who i'd still great friends with and John and Alan and I went back to Alan's hotel and we sat at the bar for an hour or two chatting and stuff. Brilliant, 
No, Alan, Alan, Alan's a lovely man, lovely man. Yes. Had great times with him. It's, it's, a, it's very surreal sometimes, you know, because you look at somebody like that and think of all he's done and that he's interested or rates what you do is... I mean, I am, I am quite fortunate. Some people have been quite supportive, you know, some journalists, you know, people, people like John Robb, great, you know, and Paul Morley. What can I say? Yes. It's, it's, it's very touching. And these are people sometimes who you've, you've followed their careers and read or listened to what they've done. And, and it's, it's amazing. And some of the um, journalists from way back when, you know, when you're in touch with them and that, it's, it's a nice thing. that uh, There was a writer for a melody maker called um, Lyndon Barber, and he always gave me bad reviews. <laughs> and I finally, through the wonders of modern social media, got into He's living in Australia now. And we had a kind of a bit of a chat about things. And... Um, he talked about the pressure they were under and all the stuff that went on. You know, he was, he was kind of, I wouldn't call this apologetic, you know, but he was, he was really nice about it. And he kind of said, oh, I'm sorry if I ever did things that, you know, I said, well, I said, I think, I think you part destroyed my career at the time, but I was very good at destroying it anyway, but it was good to chat with him and um, there's no hard feelings, you know. Yes, absolutely. and that's somebody who wasn't that positive, but he he was a good sport, and he he chatted with me, and I'm in touch with him. You know, it's good. It's, it's good. all good. It sounds like you're in a good place at the moment, both you know emotionally and and creativity. You know, creatively. You've what? Sorry, I said it sounds like you're in a good place, kind of both emotionally, spiritually, and you know, create on your creative. I am, I am in a good place and I'm in a bad place as well. I'm in both at once. I know what you mean. I've, I've kind of, well, I've, I've got to grow into it. I'm 65, so I don't have much more time to grow into it. I have grown into this thing that I am and I have got a lot of belief in what I do and I've got a lot of feeling for what I do and a lot of feeling for the world a lot I feel a lot of um this sounds hippie I feel a kind of a lot of love and a lot of um a lot of compassion and a lot of trying to represent that and trying to say something that moves people I don't know if I succeed but I try anyway yes and I, I, I am sad to say that I'm going to die disappointed about the world. There's, there's things you couldn't have dreamt of happening once. You never thought you'd see these things again, but we've seen them again. And that goes everything from the wars to racism and sexism and so on, all those things that you thought, oh, we're really seeing the back of them now, you know. <laughs> Typical idealistic, perhaps wet liberal hippie sort of stuff. Yes. But you, you really thought this century would really leave the 20th century behind the negatives, you know, the, that the world would be a better, fairer place. Yes. And, um, nice. I've, I've, I'm obviously 
as I say, going to die disappointed that it's terrible that people are still going to suffer the same things on this ridiculous endless loop that humanity puts itself through. And why on earth there has to be such cruelty and heartlessness and unfairness, I have no idea. You see, you could leave your windows open and your doors unlocked <laughs> with me. <laughs> I always say that if I ruled the world, you could leave your windows open, your doors unlocked, your car door unlocked, everything. You wouldn't have to worry about anybody doing anything bad to you. <laughs> yes. Talk, mind you, that might be a bit dull. <laughs> then again, we don't need excitement like um, crime and wars, do we? We don't need that kind of excitement. There's enough of that, really. Yes, true, true, true. So look, last kind of last thing, I know it's always a bit of a naff thing, but if there was something that you could have whispered in your, like, 16-year-old ear or brain i mean oh is, there anything, boy, yeah. is there anything you would have just sort of even though most people say well i would have ignored anybody or you know that's fair enough or actually you know i would be happy to do everything again because you learn the lessons but is there anything that you would have just thought oh there's a couple of a couple of bullet points that i could have just said god just do." oh this. yeah well def- definitely think about what you're saying and really I had a big flow of inspiration, but edit it and think it into its best form. And you can play the guitar. I had an amazing voice then. You've got an amazing voice if you only realised how to use it. And, well, at 16, I would have said punk rock is about to happen. (laughs) In In a couple of years' time, the punk rock is going to start to emerge from absolutely underground areas. I mean, the Sex Pistols started in 1975, though they weren't a great surprise musically, were they? Because if you'd heard things like The Who in 1965, what was surprising about the Sex Pistols? Nothing. Um, And if you were aware of things like Velvet Underground, which I was, um, once you heard the Velvet Underground, nothing punk rock did could surprise you. What could surprise you? The Velvet Underground were doing it in in nineteen sixty six, sixty seven. They were already doing it. Yeah, true. I like a lot of the um, when we said earlier about Lenny Kay. I like I like things that came out of it, like Patti Smith and television. I like a lot. I mean, and television of fantastic musicians. You know, it's actually quite a skilled thing what they do, and things like Art Talking Heads. Early talking ads, actually, I like the best. Yes. You know, um, Fear of Music, I think, was their best album. I saw them win that great big lineup when they did Remain in Line. It's all very amazing and syncopated and that, but the, but I also think that's where they kind of went, I don't know, I don't know how to put it in words. I didn't find it as inspiring. But... Um, yeah, if I could have that word with my younger self, it would just just be, don't give yourself such a hard time. You do have a talent, but do nurture it and develop it. You know, don't just fling it all out there like throwing a tin of paint. You know, I, I, I doubt if I'd have listened. But the- <laughs> I doubt if I'd have listened. I'd have just thought, who's this old bold idiot? 
You'd have said, yeah, he knows now. Well, you, you're the young idiot with all the long hair. I had fantastic long hair when I was 16. You wouldn't <laughs> believe it now. I, I look like teenage Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus and the jerks. <laughs> no, that's fun. Look, Kevin, well, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. I've really enjoyed it, but I'm sorry it's so rambling and I don't know how you'll edit a decent programme out of it. Well, no, it's fine. People love people love the story. You know, they love the they love the kind of. The, the I don't rant. know if I'll be able to bear to listen to it. <laughs> the only the program I listened to a bit of was the one with Barbara Gogan because I love the Passions. Oh, Barbara, yeah. And um, I've never met Barbara. I've met Richard Williams of the band, the drummer. I've met him. Oh right, yeah. Um, and uh, one thing with Barbara was. Uh, my friend Jude Rawlins used to play guitar with Lena Lovich and I did quite a few gigs with the Lena Lovich band opening for them. And at one point, Barbara was going to do some gigs with them and um, Jude suggested Jude had played second guitar with Barbara. Yes. And he said, I'm going to be too busy with the Lena band, so would you do this, the guitar with Barbara? So I was thrilled. I was going to actually play guitar with Barbara from The Passions. And then, anyway, the dates didn't happen. And then when I said about it to her, she said, I didn't know anything about that. I thought, oh, my God. So Judah had had this thing about me playing guitar with her, and I was listening to the Passions and trying to work out what they did and trying to work out which bit was Clive Timperley and which bit was Barbara Gogan because it was very interchangeable what they did. Yes. You know, but anyway, so there's a non-story for you about how I, thought I was going to play guitar with Barbara and it never happened and she didn't know anything about it anyway so <laughs> <laughs> rock and roll stories but she's yeah. great she's great she's great she was lovely actually yeah it's a very interesting program I'm about halfway through it and it's very interesting uh, uh, talking about living in the squats and everything because I was really good friends with Doll by Doll and Jackie leaving and they lived in squats in Maida Vale at a similar time and it was very like Barbara describes. People were living in these houses that are now worth about three or four million pounds, you know. And at the time, it was all people just got a room in this squat. And there's a lot of drugs and a lot of, <laughs> a lot of like living in a very basic way. You know, nobody had any money or anything, but they got by and people were in bands. And it was, it was amazing and very... And made avail a very generous sense of community that were very kind to me and my friends, very kind, yes. you know. So mm-hmm. the, that sort of roots of the passions, I sort of recognise a lot because I was around a bit, a bit of it at the time myself. Yeah, amazing. Sorry, I've gone into another side track, but there we go. No, that's fine. That's fine. Look, I'm going to, I have to say goodbye because I'm going to go to bed soon. But um, look, thank you. And if, if you're, you're not, not watching Mood, you're not watching Mood on BBC Three. I'm not actually, sorry. Brilliant series. Have you not seen it? No, I haven't. Mood is fantastic. You know, it's on the BBC iPlayer. It's, it's, a, it's written by um, a young woman called Nicole Leckie. And it's about a kind of wannabe singer, rapper, and a, trying to make it in London. But she takes some dark paths, including sex work. And it's extraordinary. People are raving about it because, and quite true, it's an extraordinary, it's a six-part series. This is part five tonight. Oh, wow. So 
I really recommend it. I think Nicole Lecky herself is an extraordinary talent. It's really like, you know, it's 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 gonna surely she's gonna go on to huge things. Yeah, she's written the songs and written the written the screenplay and everything and features in it. It's amazing. Well, See, I'll that's my it. finger on the pulse of youth culture. There, mood. BBC Three. BBC anyway. Three is meant to be for twenty-four to thirty-four years old, and I'm I'm way over their demographic, but I'm watching it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, look, I'm going to go to bed. Anyway, look, You're going to go you. to bed. I've exhausted you. Sorry. Um, no, that's it's fine. It's lovely meeting you, David. Keep thank in touch. You. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you very much. Bye. Take care. And that, dear, oh, and that dear listener is how you end a conversation with anybody. Anyway, I love to uh, leave those bits in. I just fumble around. Anyway, that was uh, a massive thank you to Kevin Hewick for giving me the time for that interview. Um, this has been C- the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, C86 Show. Keep it positive. Keep it groovy. Um, because frankly, don't, don't listen if you don't want to. Um, and also, these have all been archived. You can find these on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. True. Anyway, look, Have a great week. Stay safe.